Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the Shared Pages podcast. We are very excited to be here, and we're very excited for anybody tuning in. And uh, in case you didn't know, I'm Ronnie. And I'm Ian. And uh, we're a couple, and we like to read, so that's why we're here. And we'll be starting with our first uh, book of the month, which is Wendy's Button Box, a book written by Richard Chismar and Stephen King. They're credited co-authorship, but I think it really was mostly written by Richard Chismar with notes from Stephen King, correct? Yeah, I think King came up with the plot and then let Chismar write it. And then, like, Chismar would be like, what do you think of this thing I've done in Castle Rock? And King would be like, yeah, whatever. Right, right. Because So basically, it's mostly Stephen King's universe that he had already created, and then Richard Chismar. This was his contribution, almost. Like, you know, almost like if you were a really popular fan fiction writer, and then the author was like, hey, I want to include that. I don't know. <laughs> That's how I think of it, but... <laughs> Um, and then t- technically, is this supposed to be a horror novel? Is that the genre you I, would attribute it to? I would guess to? it's horror. I don't know what else I would call it. I don't either. Supernatural. Honestly, it wasn't really that scary. Yeah, it's not so. like it where you know, like you know, horrors coming. Because like, or like you know, in a lot of Stephen King novels. You you just know something brutal's gonna happen by the way it's written. Mm-hmm. But in this, it just felt like something was off. Yeah, almost there's a slight sense of unease, but not really. I, maybe magical realism. Yeah, so something like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, so that's that's the book we're gonna be doing our deep dive into uh, today. And um, I think we're just going to start out here. We're just going to discuss really quick uh, some points about it. And the first one we have is the, the cover of the book. So uh, for the book cover, uh, what, what do you think of this book cover? Just to describe it, it's essentially uh, like a grassy field and then like a staircase that's ascending into the clouds with a black bowler cap kind of floating past Um what do, what do we think about it? Do we think it conveys what the book's about? Um, that kind of thing. I gotta say, when I looked at this, the first thing I thought of was the song Stairway to Heaven. And <laughs> I don't know if that really conveys the theme I of the book. I also <laughs> had the same thought, but uh-huh. because of the movie Stairway to Heaven, it's also got another title. It has a different title. Oh. The cats are here. Guys, can you not do this right now? <laughs> okay, Say anyway. hi, Luna and Gizmo. <laughs> um, but there's a movie, Stairway to Heaven. I can never remember if it's the English or British one of Stairway to Heaven. But um, I actually took wrote down notes about that and um, free will when reading this. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I've never seen uh, that so I, d- I did not no, make that connection. You have. We watched it together. What? Yeah. You watched Stairway to Heaven together? Yes. I don't remember we, that at all. I, I, we, I watched it in a class called Heaven, Hell, and Judgment. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear the cats, but it's so good. They're wrestling. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I watched it in a class called Heaven, Hell, and Judgment. And that was at the same time we were like watching movies long distance together. And that was oh. one of the ones you probably slept through. <laughs> okay, pro- probably. I'm sorry about that, but yeah, I probably did sleep through it. Um, 
But for me, I feel like this cover, like if you look at a lot of the reviews and things like that, they say it's like a coming of age story that it has like an ominous feel to it. I didn't really get that vibe from the cover, but I do think it's an interesting cover. It invokes an idea of like adventure or something like that, you know? It reminds me of in The Dead Zone by Stephen King, which, you know, spoilers if you haven't read it years but it's also been out for like 20 years i think <laughs> um at the end the main character when he finally dies he like hears a voice i think it's his mother's voice and he like walks down this like concrete steel like military you know kind of path into the afterlife and that's like the novel connecting to the dark tower series so i i felt like the stairway on the cover was like a dark tower reference. Like, you know, oh. there's like multiple realities. And this man who, what the heck was his name? Mr. Ferris, I yeah, think. Yeah, Mr. Ferris was like one of the few entities aware that the dark tower exists. Yeah, yeah. Richard Ferris. Yeah. So maybe he is supposed to be the embodiment, if you're like a Stephen King fan of the. the Man in Black? Is that what he's called? No, or? I don't think he's the Man in Black. Wait, no, what is he called? He's the... Well, no, that, I mean, the character is the Man in Black. I don't think Ferris is the Man Oh, in you Black. don't think Ferris. Okay, gotcha, Because the Man gotcha. in Black is, like, incredibly chaotic. I'm not that well-versed yeah. in the Stephen King universe, so I've only read The Stand and It, and, and that's it, really, mm. so. Um, but yeah, okay, so, um, so, yeah, I think the cover... Just okay for me. Yeah, Didn't I mean, give a full vibe of the book. I don't love so. it. The sequel, Wendy's Magic Feather, I think it's called, has a way better cover, I think. Okay. Okay. Uh, Alright, and then, so the next part then is the, the opening of the book. Uh, I, I kind of feel like the beginning of a book should really draw you in and, and make you want to read more. Did you, did you get kind of that sense from this? Did you feel enticed to continue reading, or... Did you worry that maybe this was not the right book for us when you read the opening? I I think this book is, like, an incredibly smooth read. Like It is. It's very quick. Yeah. yeah. And the opening lines... It's interesting because I've read so many books that take place in Castle Rock, you know? Mm-hmm. That I was like, all right, I, I don't think I've ever heard this area where she's like running up the cliff side oh the suicide stairs yeah mentioned mm-hmm. in castle rock so i thought it would be a bigger deal like there is an event that happens there which we'll probably talk about right right but, like it's like it's like only like a passing thing right right yeah there was definitely a couple moments like that in the book too where i felt like something was gonna have more weight than it did you know yeah um, but I actually put in quotes here, the first line that really pulled me in, it wasn't in the opening paragraph, it was in the first, um, chapter, it was on, on book 10, the, on his head is a small, neat black hat, the time will come when Gwendy has nightmares about that hat. That was the first line that really made me be like, oh, okay, this is an interesting, like, setup here, because it's a, a little bit of foreshadowing, you know, about this character, so. I think like establishing mood in stories is really important like if it's there's there's a reason to hide the mood you know like if you're in the maze runner where the maze runner starts off as like a Mm sci-fi like fantasy story and then all of a sudden it flips into this dystopian thing you're like what right but like this story at first it doesn't really 
feel like a supernatural story mm-hmm. until like I feel like mentioning that there's a place called the Suicide Stairs and like the opening page is like the hint that this is there's like a darker there's a darker theme like a darker underlying theme yeah. in this in this book here so um but I gotta say as far as for answering uh, did it did it make me eager to read on. Uh, this is not usually my typical genre that I'd be reading, so the opening kind of was not what I was looking for, I guess. But it was it was good, and like you said, it was a very fluid read, so it's... Yeah, like, you know, sometimes even with books I like, I'll just find myself kind of, like, losing the thread sometimes. If, like, I really like, like, long-style gothic writing, and then sometimes I'm just like, you know, I could skip this paragraph, and it doesn't really change anything about the story in this. But the writing is so accessible in this, I was just like, whatever, I can keep reading this forever. Yeah, and it's very short, so what is it? It's only like 150 pages yeah, or something. It's, it's, it's very short, so. Um, but it is just mm-hmm. Gwendy's button box, Gwendy's magic feather, and then I have to look up the, next, the final one. It's, I think it's not out yet, but coming out soon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think that this is actually a, a good place to skip to... Uh, Talking about the theme of the book. Mm-hmm. So uh, for uh, just a literary definition here, a theme is a universal idea or message that's explored through uh, a work of literature. There are six common ones, um, you know, good versus evil, love, uh, redemption. This one, I think, is definitely a coming of age story, which is mentioned um, in many reviews. A buildings roman, that's the, the oh. fancy term. I, did, I didn't That's know what, that. That's like, coming of age is, like, based off of his German style of writing. Okay. Yeah, the, it's definitely a, a coming of age story because it follows Gwendy through most of her like, beginning life, at mm-hmm. least. Like, because I think it ends when she's in her mid-twenties. Is yeah, that right? pretty much. So, so um, I mean, that's definitely it. I I don't know that there are any other themes that are very prominent in this. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's weird. What I really started to notice, because the book, like, you know, you're like, here's a moment in Wendy's, li- or Wendy's life, here's a moment in Wendy's life, and they're, like, skipping, like, whole years sometimes. And it's really just the most important event from that time in her life. And I feel like that's how, like, up until maybe, like, age 18, you kind of are paying attention to the world. It's like, this thing happened, and this moment was important. This thing happened. You don't really start to think about, like, the... Th- thoroughfare of time you know right and so like it was like written in a very fluid way like the way a kid's brain would work and it reminded me of Stephen King did this old I think it was NPR um interview where he talks about how kids brains work and like when you're an adult like he talks about like thinking around corners like you might be like um you know you, you you go like A to B to C where kids are like I'm here, and C is around the corner, I don't know what C is, but I'm just going to make an assumption about it. Right. And that's how, like, the story, I felt, like, kind of bounced around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> and this this book was definitely very, like, it was about Gwendy. Like, every everybody else is a minor character. Like, nobody else even really matters in this book. The only other person that I would, the only other thing, I guess, that I would argue was a character was the button box itself. 
Or Ferris. Or Ferris, but he's only in it coming and going. Like yeah. he's not he's not super prominent. Um but that that brings us to discussion on the characters. So Well, we should probably do like a quick breakdown of what the plot is before we jump into the full Okay. Yeah. But like it starts with this girl, Gwendy, who has like body image problems. I don't know how old she would be at that point. Like she, I think she was 12 at yeah. the beginning of the book. And so. she's, like, running up this place called the Suicide Stairs to get in shape, and she's, like, watching what she Yes, and stuff. yes. And one day she runs up the stairs to go to camp? Soccer? Um, some, some kind of I, I think she, I honestly think she's just running up the stairs because she just wanted to lose weight, yeah. I think was what it was. I don't think she was going anywhere. I remember them, they're, like, talking about some kind of, like, sporting event that's up there. There's, like, a baseball field There is a there. baseball game that's happening. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. But she's running up the stairs, and then she stops to, like, catch her breath, and she looks over, and there's a man in a black suit with a black bowler hat sitting there, and he's kind of like, hey, kid, come talk to me. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, don't do it, child. Yes, yes. Um, don't talk to strangers. Just yeah. classic, you know, you're not supposed to. Which I think it actually says in the book when he's like, I've learned not to talk to strangers, but this guy doesn't seem that, you know, yeah. ill intent. I don't know. Yeah. Like, But and he wants, he says he wants to have a palavar. Which is a board game, but it also means, like, a conversation mm. or, like, a meeting of the minds, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And he pulls out a button box, which, when I first read the title, I thought he meant, like, those old tins that your grandmother would keep, like, oh, sewing stuff in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he means, like, a literal box it's with like buttons on it. You think it's the butter cookies, but it's, it's full of sewing stuff? Yeah, yeah. 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 But his is, like, a literal box that you push buttons That has on. buttons on it. Like, I almost imagine them like a typewriter button sort of thing, but like they're different colors. They don't have letters on them, obviously. And then like each color correlates to a continent. Yeah. And then there's one other one which is just See, the anything button. I imagined it as a rectangle with like two, 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 two on the four sides and then two on the end. Yeah. But not like typewriters. Like They were like shaped like the continent. Oh, yeah. they're shaped like the continents. Interesting. Yeah. I I guess uh, that's an interesting thing that you thought of it that way, because I didn't think of them as shaped as continents, because she says that she me- memorizes which color is attributed to which continent. And yeah. I would think if they were shaped like them, she wouldn't have to memorize it. Yeah, you know, yeah. but it's yeah, that's interesting that you thought it looked like that. And I thought it was just like regular round circles. that were Yeah. Colors. Um, but yeah, so this man gives her this button box and basically says, like, you can press... It's a red button, right? The red button is the do anything Yeah, button, you, it I will think. do, like, what you wish when you press it. And you really gotta, like, put some oomph in the pressing the buttons. Like, it's not, like, you know, typing on a keyboard. Um, so, like, she presses on the button and usually gets a chocolate that, like, perfectly satiates. I'm sorry, but she... There's actually, there's the buttons, and then there's two levers on either of the sides. The lever is for the chocolates. Oh, okay. The one is for the chocolates, and one's for the silver dollars. Yeah, you're right. Um, So. See, this is the other weird thing. I thought she pressed the button, and then, like, when she hit the lever, what she thought about would happen. Like, Mm. if she would get the chocolate. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
So like, yeah, she can basically get anything she wants out of this box. But then if she hits like the other color buttons based on the continent, it will like destroy the whole continent. That's what she assumes, at least. Yeah. This is this again leads into the a very common theme, which is like the uh, power of assumption. I guess like she assumes that that is what would happen, but like, do we actually know? Mister Ferris just says something bad will happen. Yeah. I think. Um, and he also like he says to her like, "You're, I've been watching you, and I know you have big things ahead of you." But also, you're like a trustworthy person, which is why I'm giving you this box. Right. So she's kind of made the chosen guardian of this button box, essentially, this 12 year old uh, girl. And Mr. Ferris is like, here you go. Here's your box. You can eat these chocolates and the chocolates make it so that you are not hungry for anything outside of your normal meals. So you won't have the desire to snack anymore, basically. And then the other thing is the silver dollars, which I think each silver dollar is worth like $600 or yeah. something because it's a collectible one. And he's like, you could pull that lever like every day and you could just make bank essentially. And then he's like, all right, bye. Yep. And he just, he just leaves. leaves. And the rest of the book is kind of going through Gwendy's life in the key moments, which are usually surrounding the button box. Um, so... Um, the, the first big thing that I remember is that, um, Gwendy definitely feels the responsibility of this button box because she has a discussion in her class about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and thinking about, she like essentially has a discussion with her classmates about was that action right or wrong? Is doing something like that for, I'm going to use, quote, the greater good, essentially, yeah. worthwhile? And it's Gwendy trying to figure out if she needs to push this button because some, like, world event is going to happen to stop it. Should she do it type thing? So she does take this responsibility kind of seriously, yeah. I think, which is part of the reason she was probably chosen. Um... And I'm I'm trying to remember the other big things that happened. She she notices as she has the button box, she doesn't really push the buttons that often. No. But whenever she hovers over the buttons, she feels this intense desire to push them. Mm -hmm. And it all, it almost remind, it reminds me of like the One Ring. Yeah, yeah, it's got vibes of the One Ring. Because it's like she she's like, I really want to, but I know that I shouldn't type thing. You yeah, know? and you know Stephen King actually put off writing the Dark Tower for a while because he had just read Lord of the Rings and he felt like he would imitate the Lord of the Rings. That's a that's. Probably fair. I mean, I definitely do that if I'm writing something, mostly D&D &D stuff. But if I'm writing something and I'm reading another story simultaneously, I notice I have kind of that vibe well, to what I'm writing. Cause... I think I thought about this a lot because I like do a lot of writing. But like, I think the way, you know, because you always talk about find, like writers finding their voice. And the way a, I think you find your voice is that you read a lot of the people you like and you imitate them. And as you're imitating them, you're kind of squashing together all the authors you like until they become something new that's, like, entirely yours. Mm -hmm. So, like, I don't, know. I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to imitate, but it's there's a difference between, like, imitation or, like, like drawing from as a source of creativity and then just being, like, 
I'm gonna write a fantasy story that sounds like Tolkien. Right, right, yes. But I don't think, this doesn't sound like Lord of the Rings at all. No, the preface no. it, I just think that the box is similar as like an inanimate object that has a personality that wants to, if, if we're like thinking of like how Wendy, Wendy describes it, it wants to cause destruction on some scale. Um, but it, essentially it goes through her life. It made me think a lot about correlation does not imply, imply causation, but in this case of this story, I think that it does because... Mm -hmm. The longer she has the box, like her parents were bordering alcoholics and then they stop drinking and they become like a happy married couple again. She becomes like super healthy and pretty and like smart and gets good grades and becomes super popular. Like the longer she has this box, the more good things happen to her. Um, and um, I'm trying to think of. The the first time, the first time she uses the button box, she does research and her research in the mind of I think she's like still she's like between 12 and 14 still at this point. Yeah. In her mind, this research is apparently like I'm going to look up the poorest, most crime ridden country and I'm going to test out and I'm going to push the button box. But I feel like she doesn't really know what she's intending when she pushes the button that time. She ends up picking a country called Guyana. I hope I'm saying that correctly. It's pretty close. She has like a death note moment, essentially. Like when light yeah. finds the death note. And she just is like, I'm just gonna push this button, the red button, because that's the any anywhere, anytime, anything button. And I'm gonna think of Guyana and I'm gonna see what happens. And then... Uh, like, it's like the next day she sees news that a cult leader killed 900 people and uh, by giving them poison, essentially, and telling them they would ascend to heaven or whatever a cult leader tells its followers, you know, mm -hmm. and she feels so guilty about it because she feels that it was because she pushed that button while thinking of that country that this happened. Um, and it was after that point, she almost has, like, up until that point, she almost had been thinking of the box as, like, a friend, I feel like. Because it's only been giving her good things. Yeah. Like, the chocolates that make her not hungry and help her be thin, basically. And, like, the silver dollars that are essentially, like, money in the bank for the future. And, like, if she's pretty and popular. And then she pushes that button and she's almost like, this is a dangerous thing. Like... The first real time she's experiencing it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that is a turning point in the book. It actually, when I was thinking about the box, because the box is almost a character. It, it's malevolent feeling. Mm. Like, the, like you said, the ring is. But, like, I was thinking about this with, like, social, political events that happen are happening, like, all the time and right now. But, like, the box is, like... You know, if you've always had money, you know, like, she hasn't, but, like, the box makes it so she's, like, not overeating, she's in shape, she's not struggling in school, and, like, she has all these things that other people don't necessarily have that allow her to succeed really easily, and it's kind of like if you were, like, someone who was born into money and never had to struggle for certain things, you can devote more time to other parts of your life, and then you seem, you seem like, very complete all around, you know? Uh -huh. Um, but, like, when the box suddenly starts giving her, like, negative things, 
it's kind of like being confronted with like the negative side of like being born into wealth, which there's probably fewer negative sides than think, but like they're there and you have to acknowledge them in the box. It's like basically punching her in the face and being like, this isn't like a cure all. Right. Right. Situation. Right. And essentially after that point, she kind of convinces herself that it is like her duty to keep this box and to resist pushing the buns as much as possible unless it's like a a life or death like world ending situation that's happening um and i should have taken note of this because i i can only remember one other time she pushes the button but she might do it a third time i can only remember the second time but we'll we'll get in oh <laughs> sorry uh we'll we'll get into that in a little bit um, so she essentially, like, one of the other main points of this book is that she has a falling out with her friend Olive, who was, like, her childhood friend, um, but essentially, uh, it seems to me that Olive is meant to be a character that has some kind of mental health issues, like depression or anxiety or something, and Gwendy was never... As a kid, you know, she was never really wanting to deal with that. But then as she becomes gifted by the box, essentially, she becomes even more disinterested in helping Olive. Well, and I feel like Wendy has not maybe similar issues, but she has, like, body image issues. Right. Maybe even an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so, like, you know, Gwendy gets this magic cure-all that gets rid of those problems for her, for at least most of the story. And Olive is never given that chance. And, you know, Olive ends up... Wait, Olive is... She, the one who, Olive is the one that jumps <laughs> from the suicide, suicide stairs. stairs. Yeah. And, like, her... In, I think it's in Gwendy's senior year of yeah. high school. So, like, you know, this is, like, maybe when you do the dual narrative of, like, this is what could have happened to Gwendy if Gwendy had... The worst outcome happened to her. I, I, you know, I didn't even think of that. But something that I did find interesting is that Olive was like her best friend, right? And she found this box, and she knew this box was like giving her things to help her. And she didn't. It didn't even once cross her mind to be like, I could share this with Olive. You know, like even just the the candies or something. Yeah. You know, it, it never crossed her mind. Which I guess. You could argue that Gwendy feels very responsible and, like, she needs to keep it a secret so that, you know, somebody else doesn't get corrupted, as it were, by the box. But I just did think it was interesting that she saw her friend facing similar issues as she did, and she knew the box helped her, but she didn't offer to give it Olive a chance to have that same... Yeah, and it's like that choice of, like, I have a device that could hurt a lot of people... But it could also help a lot of people. Like, you know, it's almost like thinking about, like, uh, CRISPR right now, where, like, it has the potential to do a lot of good. Or, like, nuclear energy, for that matter. Mm-hmm. But it could also, like, you know, really hurt a, a lot, lot, of, lot people, of people yeah. very quickly. So it's like, you have to make that call, and she just keeps it to herself. Yeah, yeah. Which I don't know if that is more adult of her to do that. Because I, because you know, when I was a kid, I feel like I couldn't keep secrets from my friends to save my own life, you know. But I feel like Gwendy does a, she does a really good job of hiding this from essentially everybody in her life. 
Like, even her parents never find the button box. Yeah. And and even when there's that one scene where the basement floods, mm-hmm. and they, they never catch her with yeah. it. So, I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. Because she's, that, like, for context, constantly hiding this button box in different places because she's terrified someone's going to steal it from her. Right. Which is also, like, another kind of, like, ring-like uh, Lord of the Rings thing it does where like My she's precious. yeah she's thinking <laughs> yeah. about the box even when she knows it's safe like she can see where she hid it from where she is right right yeah so that that was interesting so Olive Olive is kind of a minor character essentially her and Gwendy are best friends in childhood then they fall apart because Gwendy starts becoming too pretty and popular and Olive and her get into a fight about a boy um Classic, I think, writing right there about two girls. Why would they fall out? Obviously a boy, right? (laughs) Um, And then they just never reconnect. And then Wendy feels really guilty and responsible for Olive's death, which I think is a normal reaction, even though they hadn't talked in years and years. But I feel like you you I feel like that's a real thing. Like you feel responsible like that if somebody that you knew uh, takes their own life like that. So. Um, but it, uh, Gwendy is also at this point just connecting everything to the button box. Like, she's like, does this, is this something that the button box did? Is this like, could I have prevented this? If, oh, that's the second time she uses the button because when Olive jumps off the suicide stairs, Gwendy's like, this, these, this place cannot exist anymore. It's like every 20 years or something like that. Somebody throws themselves off them. I'm just going to destroy them. And she pushes the red button and thinks of the suicide stairs. And then a, I think the magazines attributed to like a false earthquake or something, or like a, like a mini earthquake Hmm. and the stairs just get absolutely destroyed. So that's, that's the second time she pushes the red button. Um, yeah. And like, it's interesting because it kind I think, you know, it could have just been something that never comes up in other Stephen King novels, but I believe this book takes place between the time period of the Dead Zone and Cujo. Okay. So, like, they mention the sheriff in who's in the Dead Zone and Cujo, and he dies in Cujo. So there's, like, a lot of, like, characters that are, like, background people who are major players in other Stephen King books that you never really... They, they don't talk about these events, but they just probably were not important enough to be mentioned in the other story for whatever reason. Uh-huh. So they still make sense that they would exist, but, like, you know, a lot of times Stephen King characters, I'll be like, they're just, like, when they're talking to someone, we'll be like, yeah, back in 73 when the suicide stairs collapsed or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it makes the town feel more real and stuff. Yeah, it's just kind of adding in little mini events that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So all of all of that happens, and then uh, after that point, it's kind of like um, I think this is around when she meets um, the boy, the boy, the boy, Harry Streeter. Yeah. So this is getting close to the end of the book at this point. So yeah, after after Olive passes, she meets the boy, who is it's essentially the epitome of love at first sight and teenage whirlwind romance where they went on a few dates and then they were like they knew this was it or or something like that you know and mm-hmm. he he was just the absolute gentleman and at this point she 
Wendy is not using the button box. Yeah. As as she like, like I think she all. stops using she doesn't do the silver dollars anymore. She definitely she is using the chocolates less and less and then eventually stops using them all together. She notices that her grades suffer for it. Mm. And her racing on the track team, uh, she she is no longer coming in first every time. And she notices she's gained weight. But she doesn't care. She, she doesn't care. So, which yeah. I think is interesting because essentially it's showing that she's now had all of this success because of the button mocks that she is ready to move away from it, essentially. And she now has. Yeah. I mean, when she first eats the chocolate and talks about being like perfectly satisfied, you know, mm-hmm. I like wrote a note that was like, what does it mean to be satisfied? Because like, I think as a like, pre-adolescent slash adolescent like you know you want to fit in you want to be popular you want to be invited to things so that's like what's most important to you but then as you get older like you realize like you know you can only exist in so much of the world ever and so you just want to be comfortable in that place where you are so it's like her going from being like you know very concerned with being perfect to being comfortable in her own body and also, like, set being truly satisfied versus being, like, satisfied at, like, a, like a teenage level, you know? Right, right. Um, so she, she ends up spending a lot of time with Harry. Um, and then it comes to, essentially, the, the big, I think of it as, like, the big... It's not the final scene in the book, but, like, almost, like, the big finale scene, which is when her and Harry are in her room. They've been fooling around, as teenagers do. Damn kids. And she goes to the closet to get a dress for this party they're going to go to, and this character who's actually been in the background consistently the whole book, named Frankie uh, Stone? Is that his name? I don't remember his last name, but I remember he's a jerk. And he he is just a jerk. He's actually the reason she was running up the suicide stairs at the beginning of the book, because he called her Goodyear uh, as an attire, so chubby. Um, And then, like, he is just kind of sexually harassing her throughout the book. Yeah, Um, but... Okay, so like the, the not the tire, the Goodyear blimp, which is owned oh, by the, the Goodyear same blimp. tire. I'm sorry, I thought because you know how they call it. I don't know if you know this, but like when women are fat, they call it their tire because oh, it's like a it's like that. a tire around the waist. It's something that I don't know. It's, I thought he was calling her like blimp size. <laughs> he probably was. That's probably what the reference was to. But I, my first thought was a tire. Um... And he essentially he just kind of is like harassing her, sexually harassing her. Like he's yeah. he like corners her and like puts his hands on her when she doesn't want it type thing. And he is apparently at this point hiding in her closet and he jumps out to assault her and her boyfriend and Harry tries to fend him off. Was he hiding in the closet? I thought he just, like, walked into the house. Like, the door wasn't locked. The door wasn't locked, so this is something that, um, they... Wendy notes that day, when they get home, that it was weird that the door wasn't Mm. locked, because her father... Her father always locks the door, but she was like, he's getting old, maybe he just forgot. Then she got distracted by Harry, because they were fooling around. 
And she thinks as he jumps out of the closet to attack her that she was like, we should have looked closer at the door because there was like splintered wood around the frame where somebody could have like, you know, forced their way in type thing. So he was waiting for her, but he did not he did not foresee Harry being there, too. So I think he was hiding in the closet waiting for Harry to leave. Mm -hmm. And he attacks Wendy and Harry, of course, shining white knight jumps to her defense and for his good work, he gets murdered by the button box. Yeah. Frankie grabs it and smashes in his skull. And Wendy is obviously horrified at this situation taking place. Um, so she essentially kind of like uh, does the seductress thing where she kind of tricks Frankie to getting close grabs the button box from him, and then she jams her finger down full of hatred on the red button and says, rot in hell, to it's, Frankie. It's like a very Medea moment. And she, like, essentially watches him literally rot in front of her. Yeah. Like, he, he his skin melts away from his bones and become, like, black liquid and goo, and then there's just, like, a skeleton left over, and... She's just like, oh my god. But she's like a teenage, she's like 17 and just watched her love of her teenage life get murdered in front of her. So she acted out, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, she is also very smart because she realizes that's going to be really hard to explain to the cops when they get there. So she pushes the button again. So she does it four times throughout the whole book, I think. Yeah. And she thinks about his body and remains, Frankie's body and remains disappearing completely. And they do. Um, and so when the police come, they just find Harry dead, and then realize Frankie is actually just a horrible person who's been assaulting other women, and is probably for the best that he just got rotted away, I guess. Which but- is like a, so, like, this is, like, what I thought the main theme of the book was, because we talked earlier about that moment where she asks, like, what the greater, what you do for the greater good, like, if it's ever acceptable, you know? And, um... When they talk about, like, Nagasaki and all that, like, I wrote down, like, a bomb doesn't have to be big. Like, a bomb can just be, like, a moment in someone's life. And the fallout from that is not necessarily, like, nuclear fallout, but it can also just be, like, the ramifications of a death in someone's life. Yeah, and that's something which the the final chapter of the book, the final scene is, like, Wendy, when she has finished her undergrad, I think? And um, she is visited by Mr. Ferris one last time, Richard Ferris, the man in the black bowler cap, and he has come to collect the box. And she asks him if she, well, one of the things she asks about is if she's responsible for the man in Guyana when she pushed a button and he's like, no, that man was already horrible. He was going to do whatever he was going to do. And she feels somewhat relieved by that, but he also kind of validates her choice to kill Frankie Mm -hmm. in those final moments because he's like, you prevented him from essentially going on to probably rape and kill more women by doing this. So he was like, you, you've had the bottom box for like two decades at this point and you've been a better protector than most have of it. That's like, well, I think the biggest difference from a Stephen King written novel and like Chismar is that Stephen King always gives you a reason, like some kind of reason to understand the villain. 
And this, like, they were just like, this kid fucking sucked. <laughs> yeah, this kid was just horrible, basically. Like, even the man in black, you know, he, who's yeah. a super villain, like, one of the worst people to ever exist in, like, any timeline. There's, like, a whole side novel about his childhood, and, like, you feel awful for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, um But, yeah, so then, basically, he tells Gwendy that she's been a better protector than most, that she resisted. I don't think she ever pushed any of the continent buttons. She only used the red one. Yeah. And only in times of extreme duress or innocent exploration as to what it it was, you know? Mm. And he mentions that. And um, I also kind of feel like the ending where he is coming to collect the button box is almost like a final test for Gwendy. Like, will she let it go? Like, she's been thinking about getting rid of it for years, but will she actually be able to do it? Yeah, and I definitely... Um, that's why, like, because, like, he comes and takes the box away, and he says, like, I know a kid in, like, Idaho or something who yeah, is going to get this box something back. like that, yeah. And, like, he's, like, a real good kid. And, but, like, we know there's Gwendy's magic feather, which is the book after this. So I'm assuming he comes back and gives her the feather. I'm assuming. Because he's on the cover of the book. Yeah. And then there's Gwendy's final task, which is the book coming out. I think it's coming out this year. Um, Which is interesting because, like, going into this, I knew this was a a book in a series, right? Yeah. But the ending is so, like, uh, put together that it almost could just be just this book. Yeah. Like, it doesn't have to continue on. You could just read this and not have to read the other ones. Yeah. Um, But clearly something does happen after. Um. And yeah, so that was Gwendy's. Um, I'll ask, did you have did you have a favorite part of the book? I don't know, like if it's like a specific moment, but it's also because I've been rereading Greek tragedies. Like the story feels very similar. Well, maybe like it's another thematic thing. Is that I'm like, what is the free will in this story? Because this man appears and gives her a magic box and like how how many people are gonna be like nah i don't need that you know but um i was reminded of uh agamemnon and Clytemnestra because agamemnon is cursed not cursed but he kills his daughter iphigenia so they can sail the gods make him do it and then in turn he's kind of like cursed and he gets murdered by Clytemnestra's wife and, you know, I was thinking about that with, like, she is not given really a choice to take this box. This guy just comes up and gives it to her and in turn ends up with a dead boyfriend that she didn't really get a choice in that. And it feels like the box is malevolent to the point of doing that. And the box is kind of like the Greek gods were like, you're like, did they ever have a choice? Like, was this going to happen no matter what? Yeah, and it, I guess I could see that because it is like the box is almost possessive of her in the same way that she's possessive of it, where it's like it didn't like that once Harry came into her life, it was essentially getting ignored by Gwendy, the box was. So almost like the box called uh, Frankie there to kill Harry so that she would use it again, you know? Yeah, and then like... This is just a side, like, tangent for Stephen King stuff, but, like, there is in the Stephen King universe, there are, like, they call I think it's the Order and the Chaos. So, like, Pennywise is a chaotic being, and then, like, Maturin, the turtle, it is, like, a 
order being. And there are, like, levels. There's, like, upper order and upper chaos, so they're, like, way up there. But there are, like, lower divine beings. Like, the in Insomnia, there's these three beings who are the fates, essentially, and they come and, like, cut your soul and, like, leave your, help it leave your body. They, like, take your pain away, essentially. And, like, one of them, like, turns chaotic and, like, it messes up, like, the whole flow of, like, reality for a while. So, like, I want to know more about Ferris. Like, I want to know if he's, like, a Pennywise and Maturin being, or, like, a, you know, like, they're called, like, Acropos or whatever, mm-hmm. like, level being, or if he, like, in the Dark Tower universe, there's, like, like gone is God. Like, he, he might just be God, like, be God mm-hmm. of that universe, which is what's driving me nuts when I think about it. Okay. So you just want more information on where... Yeah. Mr. Ferris falls in the general Stephen King universe. Yeah, like cosmology. Because he's definitely, like, he seems like a Dark Tower-aware character. Like, he's, like, high enough of a being that he moves between realities. Right. Right. Um. So you didn't have a specific favorite part, though. No, no, not really. <laughs> I think um my favorite part of the book was when she goes to that um convention center to sell her coins. And she meets Lenny, mm-hmm. uh, the coin guy. And as she leaves, after selling the coin, she runs into Frankie and one of his friends. And they block her as she's trying to leave the parking lot and kind of put like their hands on her. And Lenny essentially comes out and is like, uh, like, like, let her go. You don't and want none of the smoke kids. Yeah, and like, uh, yeah, what is that what he says? No, he no. says, like, um, <laughs> I wish like, he said that. Frankie's like, get lost. And then they're like, the Frankie and his friends say, it's two on one. I like those odds, old timer. Then Lenny reaches into his pocket and comes out with a flick knife. And then he says, Semper Fi on the side. Clearly, he's like a, a veteran and yeah. then he goes now it's two on two and the kids just <laughs> fucking run yeah. i was just like damn Lenny. This, that actually reminds me of like i always thought stephen king's writing and this isn't necessarily king because chisma wrote this but like it feels like i always describe the way king describes the world as like it feels like detroit like you know there's like a beautiful city there and it's kind of slowly fall into disrepair and it's like rough around the edges but there's like these like heroes like with you know like places that like really matter yeah lenny was a really interesting character to me because he was he was literally only in it for like that one or two chapters but i was like he's such a badass he's clearly one of the the good characters which are always super obvious i feel like in stephen king novels like you know um in this case, Richard Chismar, but in the Stephen King universe, and he definitely falls into that category. Um, but yeah. Yeah, and like, just going back to the good characters for a second, they always, I like, that's another difference, is like, Chismar, I don't think Lenny has a flaw. Like... Not mentioned, yeah. at least. And like, where King is always like, you know, like, their internal monologue is like, yeah, I have a few vices. Like, I smoke, but overall, I, I I'm drink. a good person. Yeah, I drink a lot, but and, you know, I'm a pretty n- nice dude. Like, know, I'm not an angry drunk. Lenny you know? is like Lancelot for most of yeah. it. <laughs> but again, you only see him for like those two chapters. Yeah. It's only like five pages for the grand scheme of, of Gwendy's because all the chapters are very short. Yeah. Um, did you, okay, so you didn't have a favorite part, but did you have anything marked in there that was like a very memorable quote? 
or something, a passage that I, really stood out to you? Anything like that? I actually marked down when she's asking about the bombs, like, you know, the nuclear bombs and, like, what is for the greater good and all that. But not because of that. I, I wrote down, like, you know, the teacher comes to her later and is like, you know, I didn't know how to react at first, but I think that was a good question. And you, like, facilitated a really important discussion that right. we never would have had if I had just played it safe in class. Yeah. And I wrote down, like, how often do children teach adults and how often do children or do adults listen to children? Yeah. How often are adults, like, receptive to that? Yeah. Clearly that teacher was, like, the cool teacher, though, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's how they were portrayed. She was, like, very open to having open discussion in her classroom and, and stuff like that, so she, yeah. she was an interesting character But I just well. found that moment interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Alright then, do we have uh, any final takeaways from the book? Is there anything that we missed that you want to cover, or did the book teach you anything? Did it make you consider something? Did you like the ending? I So I, I like this story a lot. The one thing that it, like not that it taught me, but like that it got me interested in writing wise is like how do you write something that's like this disjointed? Like it's not like a through line of her life where you're like getting you know a story narrative. It's like here's point A, we skip two years. Here's point B, and like how do you write in like that style where it's almost like dreamlike? You know, like you're just going from moment to moment, but it feels very fluid and natural. Okay, which so is what I thought was like the most impressive part about the story is it. It goes across like twelve years and like a hundred and twenty pages. That that yeah, that's definitely something that like when I used to write stories that I would always struggle with. I'm like, I gotta fill in every single detail of like otherwise people are gonna be like, Well, how does she get there, you know? But this book definitely uh kind of masterfully skips through her life to the point where it doesn't even feel strange that you're doing it. I mean, you are aware that the time skips are happening because they're obviously pointing out like her age and what's happening, but it it feels right for the story. Yeah, and like so. no, and you're never confused because like, well, this is actually a question. Like, who is telling this story? Because I think the button box is telling the story, mm. like from its point of view. Um, and like, because uh, like it's always like you know every chapter is like Gwendy's like senior year you know so you know how much time has passed from the moment before but clearly Gwendy's not telling the story I mean you know I guess that would make sense for the way the story is told too because the box is essentially like an immortal thing so time would not necessarily be something that it's like you have to go step by step through and kind of be passing quickly for it you know um so that's interesting um I, I like I said, I did personally found the ending pretty fulfilling. Like I think you could read this alone. I don't think you have to read the next book in the series. Um, it wraps it up pretty nicely. Wendy is shown in a pretty good light at the end and throughout the whole book, honestly. Like she's never really like sometimes she feels guilty about things, but she's never thrown into like a negative light almost. Yeah. Um, where it seems like anything bad happening is just because other people are bad or like. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's like a bad thing too or not, but it if, just uh if this story went on longer, I would start to get annoyed with how pure she is. She's very pure. But because it as takes, she's portrayed. Yeah, and because it's not like eighty years of a life, you know, it's more believable that she hasn't made like any like horrendous mistakes through her life. Because you know, like 
I don't want to say like everyone like accidentally like hit someone with their car or something, but you have stuff you regret. Right, and right. she has like a few moments like that, but like not awful. Do you feel like um, reading this book makes you want to read the other two? Did it compel you to continue the story, or yeah? And I, I, I can't honestly tell you if it's the book that made me want to do that, or if it's because I've been doing so much like academic reading. Like I want like like a really good narrative story, you know? Yeah. And I found this, like, so easy to read after reading, like, Euripides for, like, six months now. <laughs> like I said, this wasn't my preferred genre or type of writing, but honestly, the book is so short and quick to read. I would read the other two just because, I mean, I read this one, so I might as well knock yeah. them out type situation. And the next one is about the same length, but then Wendy's final task is a novel. Like Ooh, a full length Okay. That one's not out yet though. I right? think it comes out like in like a month. Okay, okay. Um, and just like one last thing, do you think Chismar, you you would know this more than me because you've read more King. Do you think Chismar does a good job of uh keeping the same tone as King in regards to his universe, his characters? I mean, we've already discussed this a little bit, how yeah. there are similarities for sure. But do you think it was well done? I think he's he really knew what he was trying to do. Like, it feels like King for most of it. And then there's just, like, minor little things, which I can't tell if they're happening because it's a novella and not a full-length novel. Like, I've never read anything else by Chismar. Me either, yeah. I am um, not... Uh, but I guess he's also a horror author, so that makes sense, because... Yeah, it's just, like, like, the way King's writing works is you know so much about the universe and the character that it's believable and, like, all of their actions are very intricate. Like, you never doubt whether, like, that's something they would do. Where this is almost the opposite, where you just know so little about people, it doesn't really matter. But the, like, the style of, like, the voice of being, like, in the summer of 19-whatever, you know, like, this is what happened, here's the story, is very similar to the way King tells you stories, where he's just like, like, and it begins with, like, the horror began, and then you just get, like, the freaking whole history of Derry. Right. Yeah. And then the horror never ended. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, it's, it's, and even if you have finished it, it might still not be ended, depending on the other. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I, I think he did a good job of working with King's style. Okay. Well, and also, clearly, he had... Uh, King there with him the whole time kind of giving input so yeah I think I mean like I said I've only read those two uh, books of the Stephen King universe but I, I think he did a good job um any other comments no I think that's um, a good that, first episode well I was gonna say that brings us to the final uh thing which is would you recommend this book do you recommend it how would you recommend it would you give it out of 10 stars what would you give it I think, so my, I, I feel like I have to preface my rating system, because I rate everything weirdly. It's like a 5 out of 10 is exactly what the story should be, you know? Mm -hmm. I think I would give this like a 6.5 out of 10, mm -hmm. and I would recommend it, but I would recommend it as like an introduction to King for people who weren't sure if they wanted to try out King's writing. Because like if you look at it, you know, it's like a tome. All of his stuff is long. It's freaking long. And I usually recommend The Dead Zone because King has been writing for such a long time. He's stylistically changed. His 80s writing is a lot more graphic and, like, visceral. Mm -hmm. And then, like, in the 90s, he kind of... I think he kind of peaked in the 90s. And then his newer stuff, um, 
I don't love it as much, but I still like it. I think this is a good mix of like the Dead Zone style, where you get the really brutal storytelling of like 1980s King, but you also get he's more succinct and he's not telling you a story that's 1800 pages long that could have been shorter. Because like I like those longer stories, but not everyone wants to read that much. So I think like this is like a good way to be like. If you like this, try something else by King, like Salem's Lot or something. That's true. I guess that's a good point. I would probably recommend this book to somebody who was either a Stephen King fan or had wanted to read Stephen King, but did not want to take on the daunting task of reading the thick tomes that Stephen King puts out. Um, If we're going, I'll kind of stick to the same rating scale as you then. If five is exactly what it's supposed to be, I honestly would probably give this one a four out of ten. And for me, the main reason of that is I think that the most important part of a book is the characters. And there's really just Gwendy and the button box. And like we had discussed, Gwendy is almost like a little too pure for my liking, almost the epitome of pure femininity, if you will, for like... Uh, what society Could deems, you know? Um, and I kind of like the characters a little more rougher and real and, and more of them. Could just you more call characters. Wendy a final girl? Because, uh... like, Olive... Well, it's actually kind of the opposite, because, like, a final girl is usually the girl who doesn't have, like, sex at a party right. or do drugs or something. Right. Wendy uses the... the like magic chocolates, which kind of are like a drug into her. She's yeah, like yeah. Them for a while. Yeah. And Olive lives a normal life and ends up dying. Right. So she's like the opposite of a final girl, actually. But like, there's no slasher. Like, the button box would have to be like yeah. the, the Freddy Krueger of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I still, and again, like I said uh, at the beginning, this isn't my typical preferred genre. So I'm not surprised that I wouldn't give this one a particularly high rating. Um, but if you're looking for something short, and um, it, it definitely is intriguing, it makes you think about a lot of different topics, like uh, correlation causation type thing, uh, the draw of kind of getting an easy fix to your problems, and if you would take that opportunity. But um, for me, it was just it was just all right. Yeah, I yeah. mean, like I, I I didn't hate it. Yeah, but I I I would recommend it. Like I said, somebody Stephen King, but didn't want to read the really long one. Yeah, or just like you know, you're getting into a book, you want something quick and easy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any final right. words? I think that's it. Uh, thank you to uh, Richard Chismar and Stephen King for writing Gwendy's Fun Box for our first book, and we hope you guys enjoyed. And let us know your own discussion topic answers and so you can find us uh the podcast twitter is at shared page pod or our personal twitter is mine's at mad rad ian and mine's at rare ronnie r-a-r-e and next month so this is going to come out on september 1st so to be the october book i almost said november because i don't understand how time works um is i think it's piranesi how you say it? It's how it's pronounced by Susanna Clark, who also wrote Jonathan Strange and Mister Norwell, mm-hmm. which I love that book. And this this next month is this is my selection, yeah. so I'm excited. I'm really interested because I think you would hate Jonathan Strange and Mister Norwell. But I, well, okay. T- full disclosure: I did not read the book, but I have seen the TV show, yeah. and I liked the show because so. the book is like longer than it. 
Okay, yeah. well, well, the, not this one, though. Nah, this one's only, like, yeah. it looks like 300 pages. But we hope to see you guys for that book as well. Um, yeah. We also uh, stream Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday at twitch.com slash madradian. So if you listen to this and you want to come hang out with us while we just ramble over RPGs, come hang out Come there. hang out. Um, Ask us random questions about literature or anything else. Obligatory, like, comment or, uh, you know, like, whatever service you're listening to the sound, leave a review if you like it. It helps us promote. And we will see you hopefully on Twitter or Twitch or in October. Yes.